0: It is a uh, blessing um, to be back in the book of James. So before Pastor Joshua came, I was working through James, and I've preached a couple other things since then, uh, but but I still want to keep working through James, and so we get a chance in God's sovereignty to be back. Um, and we're just going to look at a couple verses this morning, at James 4, 11, and 12, but as um, you we read them together, there's some hard-hitting verses, and that's kind of the way that uh, James works. Uh, James is an exhorter. There's encouraging things in the book, um, but it is a a hard-hitting book. He doesn't pull any punches. If uh, you can imagine a bride for a moment on her wedding day, and uh, she looks down at her beautiful white dress, and she sees some uh, pizza sauce there, I don't know why she's eating pizza on her wedding day. It's a good day. Um, is she going to say, It's okay, it's just a little pizza sauce on my wedding dress? No. Or imagine uh, you're changing a messy diaper. Many of you have little children. And saying, It's okay, I got just a little bit on my finger. Or much more seriously, imagine saying, It's okay, it's just a little cancer. We'd be shocked at each of those statements. One is much more serious than the other two. We know these are things we shouldn't be okay with. Those little bits are a big deal. And so today in the book of James, we're going to see an action we take that's a tremendous deal to God. It's a big deal to God. Even though we are often comfortable excusing it as a little sin. And that sin that we're going to be talking about is is slandering and judging others. The sin that really, I think, it's been exposed in my heart thinking about this. I think maybe exposed in many of our hearts as just part of our ongoing internal monologue even. James wrote this letter. Uh, He he, he was an important leader in the early church and and, and, an elder in the church of, of, of Jerusalem. Excuse me. Is most likely this James, although we don't know for certain. It was probably not the, 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 the apostle. It's more likely that this is the half-brother of Jesus, shared uh, Mary as mother, but his uh, father was Joseph. James wrote to these uh, uh, Jewish churches that were scattered in the Gentile areas north of, of Israel. These Jews were descendants of those who didn't return back to, to, to the land of of Israel from exile. Instead, they continued to live after the, 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 the exile, scattered through what at that point was the Babylonian Empire, became the Mede and Persian Empire, became the Greek Empire, became the Roman Empire. And they had stayed there. Now, perhaps these churches had been planted um, by some of those who have been saved at Pentecost, who, who first heard uh, the gospel preached in their own language after God's spirit was poured out uh, on, on the apostles and those who were first part of the church. So maybe some of those, or maybe it was planted by believers who spread, who'd been scattered after uh, the persecution uh, of, uh, of the early church and the martyrdom of Stephen. We don't know a lot about these churches. And was, this letter was probably written between 45 and 49 AD, between 10 and 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's early in the uh, history of the church, before there were a lot of Gentile converts. In fact, as you read the book, there's really n- no evidence of Gentile uh, uh, believers at all. As you read the book, these, these, these believers had probably grown up Jewish, as Jews, they were part of a subculture that, was a, that they had their own distinct identity in the cities of the Roman Empire. But now, these Christians were more even more out of place. They were persecuted by fellow Jews, and they were looked down upon by Gentiles. So they were kind of the subculture of the subculture. As we wait in this world today for Jesus to return life can be hard. And that's how James opens the book. We meet trials of various kinds. And he tells us that those trials are for a purpose uh, to bring us to maturity so that we become who God saved us to be. But as James writes to these churches, and I don't think he's got one particular church in mind these were, were were common problems in 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 the jewish churches and they were not yet what god had saved them to become there was a a lack of of commitment to view life in god's way there was foolish and uncontrolled speech there was partiality a lack of love and mercy hypocrisy pride, jealousy and selfish ambition, quarreling, fighting, greed, a lack of repentance. Really, if you look through the book, there's a lot of what not to be like. But that's also true of a lot of our Christian lives. We're learning to take off the old and put on the new. And some books um, really of scripture kind of start off a little bit. I I won't say this book doesn't start off encouraging, um, but have a more encouraging tone. James is a hard-hitting book. He says a lot of hard things. And this morning, just two verses, but it's, he says some hard-hitting uh, uh, truths for us. These churches were externally moral. So James is kind of clarifying for them um, what Christianity is, how to live in Christ. Um, what is the maturity that Christ is bringing them to? And so he paints really a beautiful picture. And, and, and so although in this, we're going to see what we shouldn't do. If you imagine the opposite, it's really beautiful. And that's what, by God's grace, we're going to be working towards together. A generous and compassionate and kind heart that's very slow to speak negatively about our brothers and sisters in, 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 in Christ. So I've kind of already mentioned this, that, that, that James' letters stern. But it's a hopeful letter, and it's a letter that calls us to to, to transformation, to be different. Now, uh, uh, our brother Francis, as he read, kind of reminded us, as he read, from James 4, 1 through 10, where we've been most recently. Uh, In James 4, 1 through 10, we saw James' analysis of conflict, why we fight. And we fight when we are ruled by what we want. We want something, and so we try our best, use our resources to get it. And that pushes us into conflict with one another. And really, if there is kind of an emotional peak of the book, uh, James 4, 6 through 10 is where the book was driving. And we even see there, it's such strong language, that that James is, is, is concerned that there are those there comfortably sitting as Christians who really hadn't submitted to Jesus' lordship yet. He calls them an adulterous people, and he describes their, their, their enmity with God, and that they were living as sinners and double-minded, and double-minded. It's even tough as you read to kind of figure out, is he writing to Christians, or, 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 or to those who hadn't yet submitted to Christ as Lord, who hadn't put their, their faith in Christ? And that's because it was confusing from looking at their lives. And that's somehow how our lives are too, right? Um, they can get confusing, and and really, he's going to go towards more of that here. But that passage wasn't all wasn't all about their, their sin. There was hope there. There was hope that though that they would humble themselves before the Lord. He said, "Draw near to God in repentance, and He will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will and He will exalt you." So there was hope there. James had promised God's grace to the humble. But what James doesn't do is revel in God's grace. He doesn't end in verse 10 and say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. and It's going to be awesome. And let's spend some time just being encouraged about how good and gracious God is. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Yes, he's, he's going after more change and we want to go where he goes. And we're going to try to have a tone that kind of matches his tone. So I think that this, it'll be sobering, but so is his tone. Um, James goes right back to addressing pride. Now, this kind of pride isn't really exposed so much in our conflicts with one another, but it's exposed in what we say about one another, probably most often when someone's not there. James 4, 11 to 12 is a rebuke of pride that is revealed when we use our words to attack someone who we we determine deserve to be attacked. So it's a rebuke of the pride that we reveal when our words, when we use our words to attack someone um, that we think needs to be attacked. And so James' flow of thought in this passage is pretty simple. I mean, we've got a basic flow of the letter. He wants to push them toward toward being mature Christians, towards being what God saved them to be. But in, in these little verses here, his, his flow of thought's pretty simple in verses 11 to 12. He's going to command us what not to do. He's going to expose why this kind of apparently little sin is such a big deal. And then he, he's going to urge us toward humility towards God and love toward one another. If you're taking notes, uh, though that, that urging, I'm, I've titled as a rebuke, because it's pretty strong. Okay, so let's jump in, in in into the command first, and we'll see what uh, uh, James is commanding us not to do. So James uh, specifically forbids one sin. He says, "Do not speak evil against." And that uh, word, "speak evil against," it's one word in the Greek. Um, it's the same word as we see in in, in verse eleven to to speak against. So that word evil there, it's it's, it's not specifically there, but it's in the idea. To speak against someone, it's obviously, by context, is speaking evil about someone. You're you're saying something negative, or it's negative speech about someone. Um, James is concerned, though, not just about speech, but about a kind of speech. And he's concerned about what that kind of speech reveals about our hearts. So beginning in verse 11, There's the specific command, do not speak evil against. And then 11, he kind of expands upon it. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So there's a combo idea. Speaking evil against is the action. Um, And judging is kind of the heart behind it. At the end of verse 12 says, who are you to judge your neighbor? He doesn't say speak evil against. So he's got these two concepts in his mind at the same time. Speaking negatively about someone and judging them. This is closely connected, um, and, and so closely connected in James' mind is the mouth that condemns and the heart that judges. And really, that's, that's not too surprising, right? If we're going to condemn someone with our speech, it's not surprising that we have a heart that judges. Now, this word, uh, speak, speak evil against, is sometimes translated as slander, but if you look up slander on your online dictionary, and some of your Bibles probably say slander, um, the English word slander, it kind of officially means lying about someone. But this word is more general than that. It, it, it doesn't just mean lying about someone. And that's probably good, because we would be, be or at least many of us, would be off the hook. Like, well, I don't really often lie about someone. Uh, but really, the word means more than slander. Um, It includes any kind of uh, attacking speech, shaming speech, whether in public or in hushed tones behind closed doors. It's speech that degrades someone in front of someone else. It's speech that exposes what you perceive to be someone's flaws, their foibles, their foolishness, their deficiencies, their bad habits, their imperfections, their sin, their evils, their wickedness, it's what's wrong with someone or what you think is wrong with someone. And that could be the tragic, like truly something horrible or something that's just less than perfect, maybe less than you're perfect. It's speech that destroys or or damages a reputation. Probably most of the time, if you think about why you do this, and, and, and I'll spend a little bit more time kind of thinking about what our motives are, it's an attempt to bring someone down in, 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 in other people's estimation. You may not be trying to demolish them, but maybe people have a high view, and you like to bring that down a little bit. Or maybe you just feel like, oh, this is kind of funny. I'll kind of like throw them under my verbal bus. Or maybe you just want to exalt yourself a little bit better. You kind of mark off some distance between you and them. This word is used in 1 Peter 2 verse, verse 1. And I'm going to read it because it's a context of kind of sins that go on in a heart at the same time. Maybe not all of them, but listen to 1 Peter 2.1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. And envy and all slander. That word "slander" is the same word to speak against. And a commentator writing in First Peter two one says this about this kind of person: the person with envy and malice w- with within, the insincerity will come out as he or she criticizes the person to others in that person's absence. So, if we've got envy and malice in our heart, it comes out in an in an in in an insincerity of speech. And then the the author continues, whether this criticism is cloaked as sharing a problem, a prayer request, or a concern, it makes little difference. There's something wrong going on in our heart that comes out in wrong speech about someone else. So the one who speaks evil of another, most of the time, is confident of their rightness, or their wholeness maybe, and the other person's unworthiness sometimes their guilt. So they detract or they take away from the person. You can almost imagine it being an exchange. Well, I'm going to take some of their worth and bring it to myself. That's what the speaking evil against does. So you can see why James uh, moves quickly from the speaking against to judging you know in the middle of verse 11 he says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother because obviously I mean if you're taking someone else's worth kind of to yourself if you, you're, you're obviously judging them the one who speaks evil against another does so because he feels justified in doing so and that's a judgment he's already judged the other he's already found fault with the other he's condemned him and pronounced him guilty he's determined maybe it goes to this full extent this is what judging does maybe he that person deserves punishment they deserve to be minimized in the sight of others maybe they deserve to be written off altogether see our speech against someone is the overflow of our judgment about them sometimes we want to get someone to agree with our judgment We want them to cast a vote against them, too. Like, let me give you this juicy tidbit so you can feel the same way about them that I do. Sometimes it's just to minimize them. Make a joke, which is minimizing most of the time, right? So this command not to judge, it doesn't mean that you must not confront sin. It doesn't mean that you you shouldn't confront false doctrine. There are sins and there are teachings that are not appropriate for God's people. If you were to skim through James, you would see a lot of them. The book of James is all about confronting sin. But confronting someone or correcting false teaching or, 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 or their, false, their false beliefs, that's an act of mercy. When we confront someone, we do that, it should be in a humility towards them, after praying for them. I mean, really, if you want to do something wrong, confront someone without praying about it. It, it really never goes, goes well, at least in my experience. But if you're praying first and humbly and then go to them and say, Brother, I'm concerned about something in your life. This is not what James is talking about. We do that out of mercy because we, we love someone. James is acting out of mercy here. Sometimes he says things a little harsh, but he's, he, 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 it's, it's warranted. He's not making a mistake in his speech. So James is really exposing here the opposite of mercy. What he's talking about is a failure to show mercy. It's a kind of heart, a heart that finds someone is lacking and then acts to bring that person down in the estimation of others. And It's really good to ask yourself, why isn't my heart satisfied keeping that estimation about someone else else that judgment about someone else else to myself why couldn't i keep my mouth shut why did i need to tell that tasty bit or or what that other person said or maybe even how i was deeply offended why didn't i keep that to myself often we seek to raise ourselves up i don't know if you think about the stories you tell how often are you the hero of that story The one in the right, the blameless one, the one with the pure motives. In most stories we tell, we're innocent, mistaken, misunderstood, injured. Or at the very least, we are innocent. We're more innocent than the guilty one is. Even if we confess some, we're like, well, at least we didn't do that. But the reality is that most of the time we speak against someone... I don't think we've really thought about our motives. Most of the time, we don't have some mischievous plot where we're going to bring someone down. I'm I'm going to knock the feet out from under them, and everyone's going to see them fall. So we have to ask, ask ourselves, well, yeah, I'm judging, but what's my motives in speaking? And I've just got some guesses here. You could probably come up with a more. Perhaps, and this may be exposing more of my heart here than 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 yours because we're all motivated in different ways perhaps we like to be seen by others as spiritually discerning others have been fooled but not us we know that person's character now perhaps we take it upon ourselves to not let anyone get more praise than we think that they deserve well you've you've got a high value of them but it's a little too high or maybe we're trying to protect someone becoming too praised or having too much influence on someone else. Now that's not like a careful warning by a parent to a kid. Uh, it's just maybe, maybe there's some jealousy going on there. Maybe someone is afraid of, of losing some, some power or influence that they think that they have. So they're going to be the first to strike before uh, someone else can maybe tear us down. Perhaps... We, we, we strike against someone, we speak against someone to avoid shame by association, right? So we're their friend, and they did this thing or said this thing or, or just did something foolish. So we're going to toss them under the bus to kind of get some distance from them so that we can come off as blameless, like, well, we didn't do that. Or maybe we crave a sympathetic pat on, on the back oh, it must be so hard what happened to you. Or maybe we want what they have. Don't people know what they're really like? Maybe you no longer trust that person. You gave them a chance and they failed you, so other people shouldn't try. And There's there's so many different motives. It'd be good for you to think, if you see a pattern, well, what's my motive in doing this? What am I trying to get? Now, it's fascinating that James includes this this command here directly after one of the strongest rebukes in Scripture against pride. So so as our brother uh, Francis read, he's reading through, and it ends, be wretched and mourn and weep in verse 9. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you, and you'd be like okay good I'm glad the pride section's done I'm humbled right maybe and I don't know but maybe James is going to kind of parallel here what we do in our hearts because after God has exposed a lot of pride and you're humbled and you enjoy reconciliation with God and um, sometimes I've seen in my heart that pride kind of creeps back in as you change you're working hard at change. You're putting on new habits, and, and you're growing. Some, And that's good and for God's glory. But sometimes um, you start kind of getting disappointed with other people who don't change. Well, why aren't they as zealous as you? Or why aren't they as passionate or as sacrificial? Or why don't they care? Why aren't they here for prayer time? What's wrong with them? And pretty quickly, the pride that you've repented of, has slithered its way back into your heart, into its old nest. But this time, it's this particularly disturbing version of pride, one which you judge others for not being more like you. So I don't know if God's ever done a great work where you've really been humbled, and, and, and you're like having these great quiet times, and all of a sudden you see how gnarly pride is. And uh, maybe that's what uh, James is warning against here is when that pride makes a comeback. This time, though, um, it's not just repenting in in general. It's not repenting of fighting. It's It's this sneaky pride where you're judging and speaking against others. How far have we fallen when we are like this from what is appropriate of God's chosen ones holy and, and beloved. I was thinking of Colossians 3, 12 through 14, part of our, our, our church culture series I got to preach on this passage of the kind of church we want to be. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's chosen one, that emphasis is like God. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That passage is directly the opposite of what James is talking about here. So, so often when we speak against someone, we feel, though, like it's not sin. We kind of feel like what we're doing, and we know it, it's it's it, it's it, it is bringing someone down. We 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 know it, it may be saying something shameful, but it feels true, though. Like this is this is what happened. It feels just. It feels righteous. Like that was wrong. We could give so many excuses. So James reveals the sinfulness of the sin. And so first we looked at the command against the sin. And this is the, 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 the expose, right? So this is him revealing how bad that is. Now, I, I know it probably sounded bad as I described it, but it's, it's actually worse. Sorry. And he's going to expose how bad it really is. So I'm going to continue reading verse 11 here. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Okay. Well, maybe like, well, that doesn't really sound that bad. This actually sounds a little weird. Um, One word that highlights the seriousness, though, of the sin that can't be missed is brother, right? Because James throws it in there three times. Those we speak against are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you belong to God, why do you belong to God? It's because he's given birth to you, right? In James 1.18, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God's grace in your life was that you heard the gospel and you were born again. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. James is not mistakenly repeating brother three times. He's not stuttering there, right? It's like, brother, 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 look at how wrong that is. It's God who brought us to new life. So what are we doing to our family, not just the one we speak against, but also our brothers and sisters we're speaking to? When we do this, we are home wreckers. right? It's like just tossing a bunch of dynamite inside the body of Christ and see what happens. Brothers, we can't do that. Now, as we read, James' reasoning here, at least as I read it, is not totally obvious. How is speaking against a brother or judging a brother, speaking against and judging the law? You may not even have a category where that makes any sense. I had to think about this. I'm sure you have. Well, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you think about it now. Um, we would be more comfortable if, if they said, whoever judges a brother fails to love the brother. I'm like, ah, okay, yeah, I get it. So he, he's forcing us to think here. And, uh, and we have to ask ourselves... In what way am I speaking against the law? I understand to speak against someone, I'm saying all these negative things about someone. How am I speaking negatively against God's law? In fact, our instinct is is probably the opposite. We self-righteously think that we're, we may, that we're upholding the law. We're standing for truth. We're being authentic. We're, We're warning someone. We're doing the right thing. And so to to help imagine what James is talking about here, um, we're going to imagine a a highway story. And you're driving on the highway, and someone cuts you off on the uh, freeway, cuts right in front of you. Clearly, they're looking at their phones. And so imagine as you're driving, you honk on your horn. Could be very appropriate. You speed up beside them, and you glare at them. Just shake your head at them. Then you follow them home. You threaten them. You do a little research on their address. You find their name. You post a video on social media from your dash cam on how they wronged you. You reveal their address so others can join in. You, and uh, you keep driving slowly past their house. Right? This has become a habit of yours. So in that story, are you a law keeper? No. I think the cool word is, is you, you you just doxed them, right? You revealed all their private info. You're not a law keeper. But you could say, but they cut me off. They weren't driving safely. They should have been looking. So, But in this story here, this kind of little uh, conflict exposes what kind of person the offended driver is. This is not someone who cares about the law, or at least not someone who cares about their own law-keeping. This, this person who's doing all this kind of vengeful, driving past the house and glaring, they're a law-breaker. They're a law-smasher. Kind of a, a law the, the person who's doing all this kind of vengeful stuff, this, this speaking against they they've dismissed the law they've diminished it they've acted like the law is not binding upon them they're above the law they're they're picking and choosing which laws are important you can imagine them finally getting a, a knock on the door by the by the uh by the police officer and the officer but officer i'm a law-abiding citizen you should have seen what they did on the highway so in their desire for justice, they, they've broken other laws, or at least getting very closely. Yeah, I imagine they're probably breaking laws there. So what law does the one who speak evil against someone and the one who judges his brother, what law are, are, are they striking from God's law books? How are they a lawbreaker, a law dismisser? How are they judging the law? What law do they speak evil of or speak against and judge and put themselves above obeying? Well, in James 2.8, James talks about the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we speak against someone, we've not been ruled by the command to love. Right? When we speak against someone, we've not been ruled by the command to love. Instead, we're we're ruled by a different law, a law of our own making, a law of how we ought to be treated. We judge the law. We we deny its authority. We judge God's law. We deny its authority when we pick and choose which laws we want, right? Because, Because God is not divided, right? God, The same God that says not to speak against also says to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, so which of these laws do we want? Well, well well I I I love the part about not stealing and not murdering. But loving my neighbours myself, I I can I can I can look past that one. I love when people tell shaming stories about me. Right? No no one does. Speaking evil of and judging your brother leads to another sin. Usurping the role of God. Listen to what it says. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. When we tear someone down, we don't really think that we've become a judge of the law. Right? I mean, like, no one says that. I'm a judge of the law. That's that's not our intention. But we've left the realm of being a law-abiding creature. We're not even outlaws, because outlaws know that they're outlaws. Whether they think they deserve to be or not, they know that they're outlaws. See, this self-righteousness is more dangerous. We think we are upholding the law, but we've exalted ourselves above the law. We think that we're upholding, but really we just, we just put ourselves above it. So instead of being shaped by the law, saying that this is God's law to us, and he teaches us how we are to treat one another, how we're to love one another, how we're to speak about one another... Instead, we shape that law. We kind of mold it into into something that we want. And the law that we selectively enforce doesn't really reveal God. The the law that we are, are living by becomes something less, something that reflects us in our values. It's really instead of a law that reflects God, which God's law does, this is a law in our image. See, we, we, we start judging the law. We erase laws we don't like and we underline the ones that we do like. And so we're judging the value of God's law, the worthiness of his law. It's almost as if we're saying, what was God thinking? This command should have been to criticize instead of love, to mock instead of love, to disclose juicy tidbits instead of love, to pronounce guilt instead of to have grace. When we do that, the creature has usurped the creator. It's like we say, enter into my courtroom where the honorable Isaiah presides. As lawgiver, we determine what's right, and as judge, we punish wrong. So our our identity at that point is no longer of a humble creature, and that's this wonderful phrase, a doer of the law. Like, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just a doer of the law. I just, I just want to please God. I just want to be a doer of the law. Whatever he commands goes. And we, we, we've forsaken the beauty and simplicity of being one who listens and who loves the Father's family. The beauty of being a creature in our creator's court who receives instructions from his king and graciously extends the grace he's received to others it's kind of like we've become a, a, a vigilante. Randomly enforcing his own version, I mean, a vigilante like Batman, he doesn't enforce the law. It's his own version of justice while he acts outside the law. This is a tremendous falling short of the glory of God. This is nothing like God. Christ came so that we would love like he loves. And instead, We pick and choose which of God's laws is worth following. This this is high treason. This is the creature trying to usurp the role of the creator. And so this is why James has a rebuke next. And I think that that's what he's doing in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, Who are you to judge your neighbor? As uh, James talks about God being one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and and destroy, um, he he recalls several Old Testament passages that talk about how sovereign and how unique God is. Really, When we talk about God's uniqueness, it is his holiness, his difference. Like Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he. And there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. God is sovereign. First Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is, kind of stuff is God's to-do. Psalm 75, verse 7, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two. for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. You can see uh, James wasn't trying hard to think about God being the lawgiver and judge. There's only one. It's the clear testimony of scripture. Now, James' blunt rebuke is for our good, Right? He's not harsh and honest just to be cruel. He loves us. I love you. But he says some hard things here. It's pretty much saying, what are you thinking? Right? There is one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. What are you thinking? Put down your chisel. The Ten Commandments have already been written. Take off your robe. Put down your gavel. It's not for you to judge and sentence. Put down your ax You're not the executioner. Lawgiver, judge, it's the unique right of God. There is no vacancy in the Trinity. God himself gives the law and he will pronounce the sentence. This is not our job. One commentator writes, usurping his judging authority by judging a person is really a blaspheming of God. So, this is where I know some of us have self control. We don't say a lot of things about someone, but what is our internal monologue about them? All right, if we're doing this, it's blaspheming God, it's taking his, his role from him. Each individual must give an account of himself to God. Only God will save or destroy, not us. God will not judge others by the laws that you deem wise enough to place upon them. He will not take into account the judgments that you render about other people in your own courtrooms. He's got his own. But that judgment you use to others can be the basis by which you're judged. Matthew 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Think about that, about our high standards that we create. As creator, God has a righteous and holy monopoly on judgment and on salvation. He alone determines where a soul will spend eternity. So instead of our eyes glued on another's guilt, we must turn our eyes upward. And we have to ask, what is God's disposition towards me? If I am quick to condemn, have I truly been forgiven? Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And this is not saying if you do this, then he will do this. This is about who you are. Are you in a position forgiven by God? If you recognize the amount of grace that God has given to you, if you're going to be enjoying that relationship with him, then you will be a forgiving person. Matthew 18, 32 to 35 says, uh, it's a very similar concept, and this is uh, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. His master summoned him, and this Matthew 18, 32 to 35. I'm not going to read the whole thing. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. And, and, and I know that this sermon is not just about forgiveness, but to the extent that we are always judging, a lot of that's going to be about the wrongs done toward us. If we do not have a forgiving heart, we should pause and listen to Jesus and say, have I truly been forgiven by him? If he is willing to give all that grace to me, am I going to shut grace to another another? Again, this is not trading with God. This is not saying, I'm going to forgive, so he will forgive me. This is what the lack of forgiveness reveals about our hearts. Speaking evil against someone and forgiveness of them, particularly if they've wronged you, and sometimes it can just be because they look silly and you want to mock them, which is a whole other kind of pride. But speaking evil against someone and forgiveness of them are incompatible right? If you are really, if, if, if you have forgiven someone, you're not going to speak evil against them. Speaking evil about someone is one way of getting paid for the debt that you say you've already forgiven. If you say you've forgiven someone, right, you're going to forgive that debt that they owe you. They've sinned against you. But you speak evil about them, you're getting something. You're getting that debt paid. They're shamed and you feel better. That's sad, right? That's, that's, that's not forgiveness. That's still getting payback. Now, that's just one among the many motives we, we, we can have against speaking against someone. Those who've been forgiven by God forgive others. So we have to be concerned with, our, with God's disposition towards us. He's the only one who will save and destroy. We must also be concerned, though, with what is God's disposition towards others. My opinion of them isn't what matters, it's God's judgment that matters. Saving and destroying isn't my job. It's not my role. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So listen to, uh, to, to the Apostle Paul talk about this in Romans 14.4. Romans 14.4, it's a very par- parallel idea. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He continues in verses 10-12 through 12 of Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? That's that's the heart of judging. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Judging another is a huge mistake. Speaking against just reveals reveals that we've done that, right? It's it's not about the person. It's about what we've done. So this this passage is a serious passage. It's why he gets all serious at the end. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But notice James doesn't only say one who is able to destroy. No, that would be a stern warning. Instead, James says, he who is able to save and destroy. There's hope for you this morning, just as there's hope for the one who's wronged you, or the one who's failed you, or the one who's let you down. If you feel the weight of your sin this morning, and that's what James is going for. James, this is weight, and he wants us to feel weight. But he doesn't want us to feel hopeless, Right? James' goal is to take basically nice, moral-on-the-outside Christians and expose their sin in order to bring them to maturity. But there is no cure without sickness, and there's no salvation unless you're diseased. So that's what he's doing. He's showing us where the sickness is and where the disease is so that we can go to God who saves. James wants you to hope, and Jesus wants you to hope. Jesus saves those who have a dirty internal monologue, those who have sick whispers about others and and shout out loud things that they should never even think. Jesus saves those who have passed around letters that that should have never been written and who post on their public social media uh, judging and speaking evil against others. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus came to save and transform. I think those people are a lot like us. Not necessarily you, like every one of you, but a lot like us. I think this is a fairly common sin. I don't know your heart, though. Condemning those made in God's image is a great sin. Condemning those, I'm not talking about in a true law room. We're talking about in our hearts. It's a great sin. So think about murder. Murder is a destruction of those who are made in God's image, right? You kill someone made in God's image. Well, this is what speaking against is. It's not a little sin. It's a kind of destruction. It's a verbal murder of those made in the image of God for your good, right? For, so you get something out of it. So you kind of like verbally murder someone, at least knock them down a little bit. So what is our responsibility? Well, first, run to Christ who forgives, right? Because he's willing. Maybe this would be a great time in your Bible times. We, we, we were in James 4, 6 through 11 months ago. Maybe go back and look at James 4, 6 through 11 again, where he urges us. That God gives grace and to submit ourselves to God and to draw near to God and to cleanse our hand and purify our hearts and be wretched and mourn and weep and let our laughter be turned to mourning, to, to be humble about this. And what's our responsibility? So first run to Christ for forgiveness and then to commit to do something different, to love our neighbors. And I think that's why James says neighbor here. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Right, Because he wants you to think about that command he's already talked about, to love your neighbor as yourself. We want to be like the good, the, the, the good Samaritan in Luke 10. A neighbor is one who shows mercy. See, confrontation is good when it's done out of love. And we see James doing that here. He's not tearing down so he feels better. His words are are, are harsh and sting because the danger is huge. But speaking against, so confronting is an act of mercy. Going to someone humbly and prayerfully and saying, Brother, I'm concerned about this. That's an act of mercy. Speaking against someone will never be an act of mercy. It is not for their good. It's not prompted by love. To love your neighbor is to be like God, to do what's best for them. Our job is to love our neighbor, not to press charges against them so others can cast a vote in your favor or pick up some stones to throw at them. So practically, and just to end here, I've got a, a few ideas of some things to either do or be careful of. I've kind of already mentioned some of them. So first of all is to mourn. So if this has been exposing to you, it's been exposing to me. This has kind of uh, been a hard text to think about. Mourn over your critical, condemning attitude and the corrosive speech that overflows. All those rotten things we say that knock people down expose someone's little flaws. Another thing is turn to Jesus, the one who can save and destroy. Maybe for some of you, you're aware this is a pattern of life. Maybe for some of you, you're aware, I am not right with God. This is totally how I see the whole world. I am a judge of the law. I'm the king of the universe. Everyone is always guilty before me. Jesus is willing to forgive you. That's why he died on the cross, is to take the punishment that we deserve. So turn to him and hope in him, and he will forgive you. If you want to learn more about what that means, I would love to talk to you afterwards. You might want to ask yourself, When you're tempted to say something about someone, why do I feel so compelled to speak against them? Why is this thing at the tip of my tongue? Why am I having a hard time keeping this back? What is my flesh gaining? I think that's a great question to yourself. What is my flesh gaining by talking about someone else? So speaking against evil against someone is not always um, when you've been wronged. It may just be pride, but if you have been, I think a lot of times it's because we've been wronged or we imagine a wrong. Um, so one, one thing is so important, don't replay the video again and again of what happened or of what she said or, 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 or how you were hurt or shamed. Our hearts love playing that again and again, even after we've forgiven the person. Okay, don't let yourself play that. Like, destroy that tape. Burn it. You know, tape, you know, VHS, you know. Tear that thing apart. I already said this. Be cautious of being the hero in your story. When, when, when you tell that, the odds are you always look better than the other person. Instead, entrust yourself to the Lord. This is what Jesus did, 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. He was just not a vigilante. He didn't put on his his bat costume and go get those evil Pharisees. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's so key when we're wrong, 1 Peter 2.23. If you're speaking against someone, it may be worth asking whether you have forgiven them for how they've wronged you. And and, and Ken Sandy in his book, The The, Peacemaker, and I sent you a a link with a summary of these. Um, um, There's four promises of, of forgiveness. When you forgive someone, here's four promises that you make basically. I will not dwell on this incident. I won't replay that tape again and again. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. There may be a time where you have to speak about it again. Real things happen. There are consequences. But I'm not going to use it against you. This is not about you being knocked down. I will not talk to others about this incident. And we could expand that. There are times where, where, where um, yeah, just in general, it's a good principle. I will not talk about this incident. If you've forgiven them, you're going to let it go. And here, this is good. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. If you've forgiven someone, you're not going to let it break that relationship down. If you have a good relationship with someone, you should not be speaking against them. Trust that God is able to save, last, both you and your brother, right? Trust that God, he's the God who saves you, he's the God who's going to save your brother. Just a little bit of judging, just a little bit of slander, of speaking against Are not okay. We would not be okay with sauce on our wedding dress. Wouldn't it be okay? I'm just going to let the cancer stay. Or when we're changing the diaper, we go wash our hands as quickly as possible. Just a little bit of pushing God off his throne, rewriting his laws, and seizing his gavel, it's a big deal. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I want to be humbled, and I want to be more humble, and I want to be broken. I want the sin to be exposed in my heart, and it's what I want for my brothers and sisters here to the extent that they are guilty of this. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to evaluate in a uh, a grace-filled way. We know that you are gracious. We know that you are forgiving. We know that you are good and that you are merciful, um, Lord, but we don't want the sin to linger Lord, we are thankful that you are the God who saves, you're the God who transforms, who makes the sick whole, and you can transform this in us, Lord. Uh, Help it not to be a pattern of life, Lord, how sad, and and, uh, I think we probably all found ourselves in relationships, where every word is another accusation against someone, another repetition of the wrong that they've done, Um. Or maybe it's just someone we despise and we're continually make jokes about. I pray, Lord, that that would not be part of us, Lord. James wrote so that we would become mature Christians, so that we would become like James' half-brother, Jesus. He knew what this looked like. Um, He never heard Jesus speak against anyone. Please, Father, help us to be like Jesus, Uh, people that would uh, not just put a, a guard over our mouths, Lord, that we'd be so guarded in what we are thinking about others um, so that instead we would uh, be so much more concerned about how you see our brothers and sisters in Christ than the way that we see them. In Jesus' name, amen.